We'll stand together in Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll read verses 12 through 17 together. The Bible says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, referring to the Chaldeans. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to look, that, or excuse me, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thou thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? It creates a serious question using the Chaldeans to judge the people of Judah. He says, And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them, which the angle, they catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. He's describing the Chaldeans in their behavior. Therefore, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Again, this is Habakkuk expressing his confusion of how God would use an ungodly group like the Chaldeans to judge Israel. And we'll talk more about that, uh, but he's asking some questions. He has some questions. And I want to just preach to you this morning on standing on solid ground. Because when you have questions, I mean, obviously you want some answers and you want to be on sure footing. And through this text, we can see how we can have some, some foundation when we have a lot of questions, when we have a lot of trouble in our life and in our world and our culture. So let's look at that today. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'd help us to stand on solid ground, and I pray that you would teach us truths about yourself today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing. Now, we know that the internet has brought with it some some real problems, but it has brought some some great benefits as well. And one of the things that's so wonderful about the uh, internet is if we don't know an answer to something, if we have a question... All we really need to do is Google it, right? I, mean, I can't tell you how many times we've been sitting at a dinner table and been talking about something and maybe an argument ensued. I mean, I'm sure that doesn't happen at your house, but at ours it might. And uh, who's right and who's wrong and no, I think this. And boy, we just Google it. And boy, you have access to instant information and answers to your questions. Uh, sometimes Google will direct you to a website called Quora.com and there are many websites like this and the premise of a place like Quora.com is that you can post any question. I mean, any question you want. You can post any question, and people will answer it. The problem with that is that while there is no question that's off limits, neither is there any answer that's off limits either. And that's why we sometimes tongue-in-cheek might say in a service, like, well, you know this is true. I saw it on the Internet. And there's a great bit of sarcasm that comes with a statement like that. Somebody asked the question on Quora.com, why are we told to never question God? Why are we told never to question God? That was a question that was posted there. And as you can imagine, there were some maybe good, solid answers that were given, and there were some, uh, man, I mean, the, the, the haters come out, come out to, to play on questions like that. I'm going to read one to you. A man named Peter Merrick, this is what he answered to that question. The question was, why are we told never to question God? Peter Merrick answered and said this, because the people who tell you 
what they, the, the people who tell you that want to maintain control over your worldview by continuing to explain to you what God wants, which often conveniently aligns with what they want. It's basically an appeal to anonymous authority fallacies. So he's being very hateful in his response. I was thinking about that question, why are we told never to question God? I think that whole conversation is based on the false idea that we've, never, that we've been told never to question God. Can you give me a Bible and verse where we're never told to question God? In fact, many of the Psalms, we've studied the first 50 Psalms together, many of the Psalms that we've studied are David or men like David who have questions to God. How many of you have ever read the book of Job before? You know, that whole book is a book full of questions for God. You see, the Bible really never tells us that we are not to ask questions to God. We're not to question God. Now, it does warn us against arrogantly challenging God. That would be a foolish thing to do. But it does not forbid us from asking questions. I want to remind everybody this morning that that's how we learn and how we grow is by asking questions. So we come to the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk had doubts. He had questions for God, but I want you to notice something about Habakkuk. He, much like Job, who we made reference to, never abandoned God. Remember Job? All that happened to Job. He lost his wealth. He lost many of his family. He ended up losing his health. And here he is in a bad state. And the Bible says in Job 2 and verse 10, In all this did not Job sin with his lips. And so the idea here is that there is a difference between having doubts, that's what Habakkuk had, and by the way, if we're being real and we're being honest, everybody in this room that's walked with God for any length of time has had some doubts. I'm not saying that you sit around all the time and you just question, am I saved, does God exist? But there have been questions in your mind, things that you did not completely understand. You didn't understand why this was happening, why God does this. And I think sometimes we might even ask, is there a God? Is the Bible true? Am I really saved? There, there are moments in time where people have doubts and they have questions. But there's a difference between doubt and a difference between unbelief. You see, I would say it this way, it's the difference between asking questions and questioning. I know we have several educators among us today, and, and I, uh, this is the nature of me, just teaching and preaching. I also teach a class in our Christian school here, uh, uh, 11th and 12th grade Bible. And I have noticed this in, in people, that there is a difference between asking questions and being questioning. And every teacher in here knows the difference. I mean, you can just tell somebody's attitude when they're asking a question because they want to know and they want to grow and they want to learn and they genuinely have a concern and between somebody who just wants to, to barb things and, and incite things. And listen, we can sometimes come to God that way. You see, the difference between doubt and unbelief or asking questions and questioning, one is a denial that refuses to believe, the other is a belief that refuses to deny. Meaning this, is some say, it doesn't matter what answer you give me, I'm not going to believe what you tell me anyway. And the other says, hey, I have serious questions here, but, but, it, but regardless of whether I get that answer or not, I'm telling you, my, my faith has found a resting place. You see, one makes assertions and doesn't even remain for an answer. I have had people who were detractors and doubters, maybe to the Christian faith or to elements of the Christian faith, and they ask questions and they won't even stay around for an answer. 
It's as if they think that their questions are impervious to an answer. It's really that they don't even want to hear the answer. And so one makes assertions that doesn't stay for the answer. The other makes assertions and won't move until there is an answer. And that's how I feel that we ought to be, right? Habakkuk rehearses in this text qualities in God that are basic. They're they're simple, but they are strong. So this morning as we try to dive into this text a little bit and draw some truths and ideas out of it, I will say that I'm going to do the same. I'm going to give you something that is very basic. Think about it, church. When we teach our children, uh, the kindergarten class is right under me, and when we teach our children here at the school, uh, that we teach them the basics. And I hear them. Oh, yes, Ms. Hernandez, I hear them. One, two, and they count all the way to 100. Yes, they get there. They get there. I hear A, A, apple, B, B, ball. I hear it all day long. That's why if you come in my office when I'm studying, they're not the only reason, but sometimes that's why I'm listening to classical music. (sighs) We have to teach them the basics. We have to teach them the basics on which to add and to read and to write and Those kind of things. Well, the same is true in the church. We need to know the basics of our faith. We need to know the basic characteristics of our God. And while they might be simple, they are strong. You see, when we are driven to our knees by external and internal pressures, we need to examine afresh what God really means to us. That's why I think so many people are shaken to their core about what's going on in this world in which we live. That's why we have so many questions about the morality that we see in and out on a daily basis, really we should not so as much ask the question, what in the world is going on around here? We should ask, what does God mean to me? My family and I, we like to hike when we have a chance to do it. We probably don't do it as often as we should. We like to hike, and if you've ever done hiking, you know that as you go along a trail, there's going to be some times, depending on the difficulty of that trail, where you need to get some some good, solid foundation as you navigate your way through a through a trail. And so as we are hiking, sometimes you'll, you'll look and you'll be going through a trail. Maybe you have to cross a brook or maybe you have to go up an incline or maybe there's some muddy terrain and what do you look for? You look for little rocks that are jetting out. You look for solid places on which to put your feet as you navigate through a trail. Well, listen, understand this morning, life is kind of like a trail. It's a journey that we're all on. And as you go along, listen, there's going to be some muddy places. There's going to be some flowing rivers. There's going to be some steep inclines. There's there's going to be some uncertain terrain along the way. And when you get there, you have to put your feet on a solid foundation. So today, I want to encourage you. We need to recognize that yes, we are facing some spiritual problems. And yes, we are facing some uncertainties in, in our time, much like Habakkuk was in his time. And so today I want to encourage you as your pastor, I want to encourage you and lead you to find footing on theological truth. So this morning, we see in Habakkuk's discourse with God, he's talking to God, he's conversing with God, and he has questions for God. If you go back and read these verses that we read, verses 12 through 17, much of this is just questions. But I want you to see in these, these handful of verses that this discourse with God is really a short course in theology. So I want to give you this morning four attributes of God to remember in times of doubt. 
We may be uncertain in our times. We may be wondering, where's all this headed and where's all this going? My friend, there are some things that we should be rock solid about when it comes to our God. And I want to give them to you this morning. Number one, I want you to see from our text that God is eternal. God is eternal. Did you see that in verse 12? Art not thou from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? Art thou not from everlasting? Again, I'm just talking to you theologically this morning, and I, and I hope that our church is strong enough to handle some meteor preaching today. Again, I'm not going to blow your socks off here, and I'm not trying to uh, write an entire discourse on systematic theology this morning, but I'm telling you, we need to know what we believe about God. And one of the things about God, one of His, one of his great attributes is this, is that He is an eternal God. Art thou not from everlasting? What we mean by this is that God never had a beginning and He will never have an ending. Now again, I, I don't know that we can fully comprehend that. There's no way that a, a man with limitations can fully explain that to you. And, and while we may not be able to fully comprehend that, I want to remind you, a God who is small enough to be understood by us isn't big enough to be worshipped by us. And I'm glad that I can come in here this morning and I can sing praises and, and, and pause to pray to a God who is bigger than me, whose ways are higher than my ways, whose thoughts are greater than my ways. I want a God that, 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 that is much larger than myself. Otherwise, I would be my own God. And so I remind you that our God is eternal. And while we cannot fully comprehend and fully explain some entity never having a beginning and never having an ending, that's what we have come to know and understand about God. You see in verse 12, it says there, O Lord, my God. He says, Art thou not from everlasting? He says, O Lord, my God. That expression there is the, the name title Jehovah, which also carries the idea of being a self-existent one. So understand this morning in theology, there's another term that is closely associated with the eternality of God. And that's the aseity of God. And it means this, that God is sufficient to Himself. He is independent of anything outside of Himself. Friend, you and I are not that way, are we? Think about it. When we were conceived in the womb, we, we were totally dependent upon the nourishment of the mother. When we entered into this world, and, and here we are, a viable living creature there, to use modern terminology, we need to understand that we're still totally dependent upon the care of our parents. You and I do not have a sufficiency to ourselves. We are not independent of everything outside of ourselves. But I tell you this morning, our God is. Don't you love the poetry of the psalmist who said this? Speaking on behalf of God, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. If I were in need of anything, I would not tell you why. Because our God is the eternal self-existent one. In fact, he said to Moses, don't you love that story? Moses is journeying in the, in the wilderness and he comes upon a bush that is on fire and being consumed but is not burning up within himself. And Moses pauses to talk to this bush. I always find a little bit of humor in some of these Bible stories. And people will say, do you really believe that a bush could talk? I do if God was in it. What I find a hard believing is a man stuck around to talk to it. I think I'd have been hightailing it out of there. He pauses and carries on this conversation with God. And God tells him, Moses, I want you, I want to go, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man in all the world. I want you to walk in there with nothing but a stick. I want you to tell him to let over a million people who, who, finance, or who, who, who are the backbone of his economy, let them just walk out the door. I want you to go tell him that. Well, Moses, don't you think he had some questions? I would have had some questions. How's a stick going to get that done? 
You, you want me? I don't even talk good. I'm not articulate. I'm not a. What, what in the world's going on? And he, and he says this Who should I say is sending me? Don't you love that answer that God gave, that classic answer? Many of you are nodding your heads. You know the scriptures. He said, You tell them I am that I am. What was God saying there? You tell them the eternal, self existent one told you to let my people go. You see, what he was saying is that God possesses this self-existence, this independence, this power of just simply being Himself. You see, we can't say that. We all must say, I was, and I am, and I will become. We must all say that. But God just simply says, I am. And that means He is who He is, exactly who He has always been. That's who God is. You say, well, listen, I came here to church this morning. I didn't come here for seminary school. Well, I believe what I've just said to you is significant because God is not dependent on anything that happens in this world. Listen, you and I are. I recognize that. That's why, that's why we're concerned about inflation and economy. That's why we're concerned about the political decisions of our leaders. That's why we're concerned about the educational system. And, and, and we're concerned about the societal structure of what's going on around us. We, we understand that because we are dependent upon the decisions our lawmakers make. We are dependent upon the economies in which we live in. But I'm telling you this morning, the reason I'm saying all of these things is I want you to find sure footing in your life and we find sure footing when we realize that the eternal nature of God does not depend upon the politics of the United States of America the eternal nature of God does not depend upon the the societal mores of our culture God has always been who he is has been he is today who he's always been and he will always be who he is and that should provide some stability and security in our life Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. That's why we love some of the old songs. I'm glad this morning we sang a new hymn, a new Christmas song. And boy, was it theologically rich if you were paying attention to it. But I'm glad that we sang old songs too. And I grew up singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. In fact, I've been around so much, sometimes churches do cheesy things. I mean, I, I've been in congregations where they leaning, leaning, and yeah, they're just doing all of that kind of stuff and carrying on, and that's fine, but I'm thankful for that song that has reinforced some things in my life. Hey, we can lean on the everlasting arms, but listen, that thought did not come from a hymn writer's poem. That thought came from the inspired scripture of God that says we have an eternal God who is our refuge, and therefore we can lean on His everlasting arms. Don't you love Hebrews 13.8? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What is it saying? God is eternal. God is the self-existent one. And all of these years ago in Habakkuk, when he had so many questions about what was going on in Judah, the sinfulness, the violence, the lawlessness, he looked around and he said, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? He hung his hat on the sure footing of the eternality and the self-existence of his God. Number two, God is faithful. God is faithful. Look at verse 12 again. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? 
Here's a little phrase I want you to pay attention to. He says, we shall not die. Now you have to understand the context in which that's given. Please understand that what, what Habakkuk is understanding, it's, to me, as I read that verse, it's like a light bulb goes off in his mind. He's got some questions. If you remember last week in the message, what happened is Habakkuk says, hey, lawlessness, violence, uh, it's just immorality, it's all around us. God, you've got to do something. Chastise these people and bring revival to our land. And God, God says, oh, I'll do it. Just not the way you think. And he reveals this to Habakkuk. He says, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to send the Chaldeans to judge you. Well, now you come to verse 12, and he's got a lot of questions now. How are you going to take a people more wicked than we are and judge us for our sin when they have worse sin? That's a serious question to him. But it's like this, this it goes off in his mind in verse, verse 12, well, we're not going to die. What he, what he recognizes is this, is that God is going to keep His covenant with the Israelites. Now, if you study the Bible, if you study the Old Testament, you know that was a big deal. It was a big deal that God came to Abraham and said, out of your, out of your lineage, I'm going I'm to bring a, a great nation that, that cannot be numbered. And then, and then He came to David and He reinforced in David from, from the seat of your throne, a, a, a great king. In fact, the king of kings and the Lord of lords is going to come from your lineage, David. And there were ups and downs in the life and the history of the nation of Israel, but God was always true to His covenant promise. That's what we're celebrating this month. God's God's faithfulness to His promise to send His Son. And and here what he understood is whatever the Chaldean army might do, it could never exterminate Israel because God had given certain promises to Israel that He could and would never break. The Old Testament records the hearts of God's people have always been fickle and untrustworthy and prone to idolatry. Yet when humankind has failed, God's faithfulness has always prevailed. Don't you love that verse? While we all like sheep have gone astray, it was the Lord's faithfulness that has never faltered, and He has endured to all generations. In the 1750s, Katrina von Schlegel wrote, wrote a hymn. You know this hymn because we sing it from here, we sing it here from time to time. Be still my soul. One of the funny moments that we had in church, I mean, man, you see a lot of things in church. It was one of our young people, one of our kids. You remember several years ago when that, that little dance, the floss, was, was in? I'm not, I'm not going to try and do that for you, though I, I really could. No, I'm not good. That floss and all the little kids were doing that little dance. One day in church, one day in church we were singing, Be Still My Soul. And I looked down and right here on the front row, one of those kids was just going to town on the floss. I thought of all the songs to, to do that to, Be Still My Soul, and i tell you what. I want to read to you one of the, the lines from that poem set to music. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change He faithful will remain. Listen, folks, I don't have to talk to you about all the changes our world has seen. Listen, I look around this room, and I'm thankful that we have a balance in ages here. We've got young people, children, uh, teenagers, young married couples, and we've got older folks. And some of you that have lived for decades and, 
and, and, and on the, 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 the back end of your, your life, you could say uh, more than anybody in this room some of the changes that you've observed in our, in our culture and our society. And I think while many of them are, are good changes, we could talk about some of the technological advancements and some of the ways that we've grown as a nation in some good positive ways. Let's be careful to recognize those things. I think we could say, man, I never thought I'd live to see a day when fill in the blank. But I just as a preacher of God's Word want to remind you something. Just because certain things have changed in our culture, He faithful will remain. You see, when everything seems uncertain and nothing is constant, when every foundation we have leaned upon seems to shift and crack, we can still rely on our true rock, the unmovable one who remains faithful in every change. Do not forget that God is faithful. He has always fulfilled His promises. Number three, God is holy. He says in verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And so again, he has some questions about that, but he emphasizes the holiness of God. As far as Habakkuk was concerned, God's first answer had not been an answer at all. How are you going to let these things happen? And God said, I'm not going to let them happen. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to, to judge you. And, and because of that, it only created a new problem that was even more puzzling to him. He wanted to know, how could a holy God use a wicked nation to punish his own special people? I think that's a fair question. I think it's a good question. I think we sometimes have the same questions. So what do you mean? If we were to put Habakkuk's question in today's vernacular, we might say something like this. Well, you know, I admit the church isn't what it ought to be. Guys, let's all admit, we've seen some goofy stuff go on in church in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. I saw a statement that's been circulating around on the internet and social media. Some of you have seen this. I know this because some of you have texted it to me. Somebody posted this not too long ago. If Paul saw the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> and I'd have to agree with that. I'd have to agree with that. Paul would be writing a letter. And by the way, I'm thankful that we do have some letters that address the issues that we're facing today. But going back to what I was saying, we might say, I admit the church isn't what it ought to be. But you know... We're not the LGBTQT plus crowd. You see, that's kind of what Habakkuk was doing here. He was kind of saying, listen, I know we've got our problems, but I mean, he used somebody who has what he considered greater problems than his own. How, how, does, how does that go together? Maybe we would say something like this. You know, I admit that I'm not what I ought to be, but at least I don't. That's kind of what he was saying. But I have a question this morning, if I could converse with Habakkuk, and I think it's a fair question. Was Judah's sin really better than the Chaldeans' sin? You see, the Chaldeans were idolaters that, that did not know the true and living God. But Judah was sinning against the very God and the very law that they claimed to believe. And, and so that, that brings something to, to us today. When we sin against God's word and against God's ways, we are sinning against an ocean of light and love that has been given to us. And we could make the argument, is that really better sin than a crowd that's lost and unregenerate and does not know him? So we shouldn't be shocked when lost people act like lost people. 
None of us should really be shocked when lost people talk like lost people. None of us should really be shocked when they go to places that lost people go and they do things that lost people do. But what should be shocking to us is when Christian people talk like the world, go where the world goes, do what the world does, indulge in what the world is indulging in, affirming what the world has affirmed, that ought to trouble us. And yet Habakkuk had a focus on, he had a focus on, on his people. Yeah, we got problems, we got problems. Deal with our problems, but don't deal with them like that. And that was his issue. But we notice here, come full circle back around, Habakkuk found footing and that it was unthinkable that God would do something wrong. And I want us all to find footing in that. It is unthinkable that God would do something wrong. You may not understand everything that God is doing or why He is doing it. But I want to remind you today that if you knew everything that God knows and you were as holy and as good as God is as holy as good, you would do exactly what God is doing. See, whatever else I am uncertain of in my life, I know that God cannot look upon evil without hating it. He is of purer eyes than, than to behold evil with complacency. And so I, I want to hang my hat on the holiness of God. In fact, I've said this to you before, and I'm going to say it to you again. I, I think the holiness of God is the most single most important attribute of God. It is the filter which everything else goes through. You see, you could be loving, but if you do not have holiness, you could love all the wrong things. Or you, you could be sovereign, but if you do not have holiness, you could become a tyrant and a control freak. You see, there are a lot of wonderful attributes of God, about God, and His holiness is the greatest. That's why you see these creatures around, around the throne of God, and what attribute do they single out to praise Him for over and over again? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. So be assured of this. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Yes, he always does what is right. Third, fourthly and finally, I want you to see this. Yes, God is sovereign. We see it in our text. In verses 14 through 17, he, he, it's not that God cannot restrain the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk is asking these questions. I mean, this is how they behave. This is what they do. This is their characteristics. This is what's going on with them. But it's not that God cannot restrain the Chaldeans. It, there's a key in verse 12. God is using these people to accomplish His purposes. Look what He says there. God has ordained them for judgment. God is using them to judge His people. And I want you to notice, when God judges His people, He doesn't just punish them. See, punishment is a part of judgment, but that's not all it is. And by the way, that's what those of us that are raising children still have in our home, we need to be, we need to be aware of the fact that proper biblical, biblical discipline involves, yes, punishment, judgment, but notice the next word there. He has established them for correction. So God is using these people to punish and correct. Now, now let's, let's make sure that we, we have the right mentality of what's going on in our world. Uh, sometimes we picture things like, I don't know, maybe like Star Wars or something. Like there's this contest between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And I'm, I'm not saying there isn't spiritual warfare. The Bible teaches us that, that kind of thing. But what I am pointing out this morning is this, is the outcome is not in question. 
See, sometimes we watch some movie and you wonder, I mean, what's going to happen here? How, how, how is, the, the, is the villain going to win? Are they going to get away with it? And, and by the way, in our culture, a lot of times our movies are created to help us have sympathy for the bad guy. We find ourselves sometimes rooting for the bad guy. We hope the robber gets away. We hope the person executes vengeance. We, 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 we hope all of these things. And we, and we watch this and we indulge this. But listen, what's going on in, in, behind the scenes in spiritual warfare and biblical content is not just this, this movie drama between good and evil and you wonder, how's this all going to play out? No, no, the, the, the end of the book has already been written, friends. God is sovereign. The outcome is not in question. God is in control. I know some people say, uh, because there's been such uh, an imbalanced emphasis on on the uh, sovereignty of God in some theological viewpoints and perspectives, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I think some people run away from the sovereignty of God because they don't want to get in the theological framework of Calvinism and that kind of thing. But I'm just simply saying, the Bible has not changed its message about who God is. Who is God? He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. He's sovereign. He's the one who is in control. And we do not have hope because of what we will do. We have hope because of what God will do. We know that. So again, this morning, I, I understand the nature of this message. I, I told you it was, it was theological and doctrinal in its framework, but listen to me. Listen to me this morning. Please, members of Oakwood Baptist Church, get this and get this well. How we think about God will affect the way we live and what our church is going to be like. So I recognize there are some sermons where we laugh more. I recognize there are some sermons where we, we, we have more practical application to walk out the door with, but I'm telling you again, how we think about God affects the way we live. And, and it's troubling to me how many uh, Christian people, their lives are kind of very unstable because they, they watch the news and they read this and they're worried. And I think sometimes it's because we are not thinking about God properly. Oh, we're thinking about the issues properly, but we're not thinking about God properly. And, and how we think about God determines what kind of church we're going to have. So therefore, we have to have a biblical understanding of God. Let me ask you a few questions this morning. Do you find stability in God's eternality? My next question is, do you find comfort in God's faithfulness? Do you find confidence in God's holiness? Do you find security in God's sovereignty? I really mean this when I say this. Every service that we ever have, I want people to come in and walk out of here after they leave with a greater confidence in this book right here. That's why we don't spend our time telling you what this book should say. We, tell you, we spend our time telling you, what, here's what the Bible does say. I want you to have greater confidence in this book. But I want you to also to have greater confidence in God because this book is about Him. It is God's revelation of Himself to man. He said, you want to know who I am? Here, here's who I am. He said, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if God just wrote it in the sky? No, I want to say what Peter said. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And this book, this book, this sure word tells us who God is. Why? So that when the times they are a-changing, we can just walk with confidence because we know who He is. 
Yeah, I know this world is unholy and ungodly. Our God is still holy. Yeah, I know. I know it's hard to find an honest guy in this world. My God is always faithful. So let's know who he is. That'll make a difference in our church.